0: Our sermon text this evening comes from Psalm 95, and we'll read the whole Psalm, verses 1 through 11. So, again, that's Psalm chapter 95. Pay careful attention, for this is the Word of God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us now pray and ask for his help. O Lord, Open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. Well, can you remember the last time you felt disappointed? Now, I'm not just talking about that brief moment of sadness you might feel when your favorite team loses, but I'm talking about what one writer described as the near-paralyzing darkness of disappointment, the kind that drains the blood from your face, that turns your stomach, and catches you more off guard than an unforeseen left hook. My wife and I, we are no strangers to this kind of near-paralyzing disappointment. In fact, it paid an unwelcome visit recently. And it is my guess that you're not a stranger to this kind of disappointment either. In fact, some of you might be living with this disappointment right now. Well, disappointed saints of God... Be comforted today, because God has given us the words of this psalm to show us how to come to him in times of disappointment. Now, unlike some psalms, we do not have a historical introduction telling us the context. So we, do not, we cannot know for sure the kind of disappointment surrounding this psalm's composition, But most biblical scholars, and I think for good reason, see this psalm as a post-exilic psalm. That means that it was likely written after Israel had been released from Babylon and returned to the land of Israel. Now, as you might imagine, this was a time of great hope. Perhaps Israel will be restored to their former glory. Maybe the temple will even be rebuilt and God's people will finally be a shining light to all the nations. But the reality was nothing short of disappointing. Ezra recalls that the elders wept when they saw how pathetic and small the rebuilt temple would be. And in the book of Nehemiah, he records that the Levites cried out to God in prayer, saying that even though they were back in the land, they were still slaves. Well, it's likely in this context, the psalmist writes, answering the question, how should we approach God? When he has disappointed us. And the psalmist, he gives three answers. He says we are to come to God with joy. We are to, second, come with reverence. And lastly, we are to come with obedience. Come with joy, come with reverence, and come with obedience. So let us begin by looking at our first point come with joy now it's to this sad and disillusioned people that the psalmist invites them well it's actually a little stronger than that he commands them to come to god the rock of their salvation now the imagery of god as a rock depicts a strong fortress that they can flee to in times of need. Here God is seen as strong and stable when Israel is weak and fragile. And the psalmist commands Israel to flee to safety, to come to the Lord. But notice the way they are to approach God. Verse 1. Says that they are to sing and make a joyful noise. Verse 2 says that they are to come with thanksgiving and they are to make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Now, wait a minute. Has the psalmist misread the room? Can't he see that God's people are sad? Ezra records the elders entering into God's temple, not with shouts of praise, but with tears of sadness. What reason do they have to sing for joy? Now some of you here this evening are so filled with sadness and disappointment that you're asking the same question. Why should you sing with joy even after being overlooked for that promotion again? Why should you sing with joy when the pregnancy test comes back negative again? Why should you sing for joy when you find yourself single and alone again? the psalmist, he gives you a reason to sing with joy, even amidst life's greatest disappointments. Look with me at this reason in verse 3. The psalmist says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Brothers and sisters, you sing with joy, not because your life is great, but because God is great. And his greatness is unmatched. There is no God or demon or angel or man who could threaten him. For just consider for a moment his awesome creative power. The psalmist says, in God's hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. Now, this is incredible. This means that as high up as you can lift your gaze, everything you see, he has made. And as low as you could possibly go, Even there, God holds in his hand. The psalmist, he he goes on. It's not just the heights and the depths that are in God's hand, but even the sea and the dry land are the works of his hands. This is remarkable because in the ancient world, the sea was thought to be a place of chaos and wickedness. It seemed unpredictable, uncontrollable. But lo and behold, the one who not only controls the sea, but made it with his very hands. And he separated out of the sea the dry land. God does not just control what is up and what is down, but as far as you can see to your left and as far as you can see to your right, whether land or sea, there God has marked as his own. God controls the majestic mountains and he controls the raging seas. For he created them and he rules them. He is truly a great God, a great King. And the psalmist, he commands us to sing with joy because the God we are singing to is great. He has made all things and he holds them in his sovereign hands. He is the maker of the mountains. He's the designer of the depths. He's sovereign over the sea and the divider of the dry land. He is worthy of joyful worship. And so, sad saints of God, sing with joy because God deserves joyful praise. But joy is not the only way that God requires of us to come, to worship him. In verses 6 through 7, we see another way that we are to enter in his presence. Look with me at these verses, starting in verse 6. The psalmist says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In verse 6, we're commanded yet again to come to the Lord. But notice that the manner here is different. Now we're not coming with loud shouting and joyful singing. No, now we're coming with reverent worship. We're being commanded to bow low, to kneel before this great king, before the Lord of all, before our maker. Why should our loud shouts be accompanied with our quiet reverence? Why should Israel enter into their pathetic temple with holy fear and awe? Why should you, O disappointed one, be more overcome by the weightiness of this moment of corporate worship than even the weight of your own sadness? Well, we see why we should bow low in verse 7. It's because this great God that rules all things above and below, on sea and on land, he is not just our maker, but he is our God. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an honor it is that that we have the maker of all things as our covenant, Lord. What a privilege it is that the one who rules all shepherds you god has separated you out from the world and he has brought you into his family into his people you belong in his pastures and he tends to you as a shepherd tends to his sheep he makes you lie down in green pastures He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. And oh, sad sheep of God, even though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil, for he is with you. In fact, his presence is so identified with you that the psalmist says, you are the sheep of his hand. We have already seen God's hand holds the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountain. His hands made the sea and formed the dry land, but now his hands are on you. And not just because he has formed you as his people, but because he is protecting you. He's leading you because he is with you. And the psalmist is saying that if our maker is specially present with us as our shepherd, then this is a holy place. Then this is a holy moment. And we ought to bow low. For our Creator, Shepherd, is holy, and He is worthy of reverent worship. So, the psalmist, he has us singing loudly with joy and bowing low with reverence. And right when it seems like the psalmist is about to wind down his exhortation, almost unexpectedly, The God who has his hand on us speaks directly to us. One commentator said it well. He said, Psalm 95, it opens in this festive mood with procession and joyful praise. The scene is set and suddenly God, the one who is being celebrated, he speaks and chills the festive air. God's voice interrupts the joyful and reverent worship, warning us of one last and most important way that we must come to him. And this last way is not just required for corporate worship, but it is necessary to enter into that which the temple the Sabbath, and even our Sunday gatherings point to God's ultimate and final rest. So if you will just glance your eyes over verses 8 through 11, you'll see that when God speaks, he reminds Israel of their forefathers in the wilderness. Now their fathers were quite like them. They had just been brought out of exile and the wilderness land that they had entered into was nothing like what they thought it would be. In the case at Meribah and Massah, the Israelites did not even have water. And the people, they began to thirst. And they grumbled against Moses and said, and I quote, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They grumbled against Moses and God. And they tested God. In fact, Exodus seventeen seven tells us that this is why it was named Meribah, which means testing, and Masa, which means quarreling. It's because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? or not you see their father's great sin was their disobedience because of their lack of faith this is surprising because in verse 9 it says that God had even shown them the works of his hand They had witnessed the great exodus event where God split the Red Sea and drowned their enemies in it. They had seen the Lord make bitter water sweet and cause bread to come down from heaven. But even after seeing the works of God's hands, they did not listen to his voice. Instead of trusting him, They tested him. They put God on trial for parental abandonment. With every difficulty, every time their mouths thirst, they charged God with failure to provide child support. Have you brought us out here to kill us? Are you with us or not? Prove it. And because of their lack of faith in God and their disobedience for 40 long years, God loathed them and he swore that they would not enter into his rest. Now, this whole song so far has been about entering into God's presence. Two times the psalmist commands us to come. But here, the psalmist says that there is a person that cannot enter. That cannot come. It's the hard-hearted, the disobedient. They will not enter. And notice... He's not talking about entering the temple or entering into corporate worship service. He's talking about entering into God's rest. And this is the rest that God entered into after he finished his work of creation. This is the rest that Adam failed to enter into when he disobeyed God and failed to complete his work. This rest, it was symbolized by the promised land, which God would not let them enter into because of their disobedience and unbelief. But God has made it exceedingly clear in our psalm. There is only one type of person who will enter into his rest. And it is that person who, after hearing God's law, after hearing his voice, they receive it with joy, reverence, and perfect obedience. And so, God places his demand upon you today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but obey him perfectly. And as soon as we hear this word, we face perhaps the greatest disappointment of our lives, ourselves. For we are no different than those wilderness wanderers. In fact, this psalm could very well be autobiographical. We worship God with joy and reverence. And then when life gets tough, when we face disappointments of various kinds, we question if he is really with us. We grumble and we complain. Although we know he is worthy of joy, reverence, and obedience, our sadness, it overwhelms us so that we do not offer God any of these things. Insofar as it depends upon us, this psalm declares to us a sad message. God has sworn in his wrath that we, the unrighteous, the unbelieving, the disobedient, will not enter his rest. God's voice, it condemns us. But do not despair. Because just as God sent the Israelites a rock by which they were saved from their thirst, so has God sent us a rock of salvation. For just as Moses Struck the rock at Meribah, and the saving water began to flow. So has God sent a rock who would be stricken for us, whose blood would flow for the forgiveness of our sins. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, This rock was Christ. Christ was stricken for us on the cross. Just as Isaiah prophesied, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. God's wrath that he swore would fall has fallen upon Christ. O Christian, Jesus has taken your sin and God's wrath upon you to the grave. The rock of our salvation was stricken. But we need more than just the forgiveness of sins. For we are still a sinful people. And even if all of our wrongs have been absolved, Psalm 95 makes it abundantly clear that God still requires joyful, reverent, and perfect obedience for entrance into his rest. We simply cannot obey God perfectly. But the good news that we see in the Gospels that the rock of our salvation did more than just be stricken for us. In fact, he too was tempted in the wilderness. And when Satan tried to tempt him with every good thing imaginable, Jesus perfectly obeyed his father, refusing to put the Lord to the test. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus was not just a stricken rock, but he was a new Israel, tempted in the wilderness, but without sin. He was a second Adam who did not succumb to the serpent, but crushed him under his feet. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And just as Adam's sin was imputed to us all, so is Jesus' righteousness given to all who believe in him. Behold, brothers and sisters, the rock of your salvation. He has taken away your sin and given you his righteousness. And because his work is on this earthly work is now finished he has ascended to the right hand of god the father almighty where he has entered into god's rest assuring us that we will join him there one day so now we are left with that same question that we began with how does this passage comfort our discouraged well, we have seen in this passage that our Creator and our Good Shepherd is the rock of our salvation. He has become like us in every way, yet without sin. He has become our righteousness, and He was stricken for our sin. Therefore, when all of your confidence seemed shaken, and when all of your hopes seemed dashed, you can be sure of one thing. When you draw near to the throne of God, you will not find God's wrath. He will not say to you, I have sworn in my wrath that you will not enter. But you will find mercy and grace. For after quoting this very psalm, this is exactly how the author of Hebrews concludes. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, God will not turn you away. This you can be sure of. So now let us go to the throne of grace together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Would you assure us by your Spirit that you will not turn us away? Though the world trembles around us, you will not give way, but you will give to us mercy and grace. Help us to believe that this is true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in response to God's word, Let us now move into a time of intercession. And we will begin.